book I wrote, which is about virtual reality, it's called VRX. Uh, I have a whole section on VR as an empathy machine. And this idea that virtual reality is a technology that is in essence forcing conversations that never would have occurred. So whereas an electronic health record averts my eyes and causes me to look away from my patient, VR causes me to look at my patient and communicate with my patient about really deep existential issues. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators transforming the future of health. I'm Logan Plaster, Editor-in-Chief at Startup Health. Dispense with everything you know about virtual reality. So says Dr. Brennan Spiegel at the opening of his new book, VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. Dr. Spiegel, our guest on this episode, directs the Center for Outcomes Research and Education at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in LA. He's really one of the most influential and forward-thinking figures in health, health innovation today. So we invited him to a recent Startup Health fireside chat to pick his brain. The conversation went deep into the potential for virtual reality to transform therapeutic care well beyond what many people see as possible today. We gave the founders on the call the chance to pepper Dr. Spiegel with their questions. So you'll get to listen in on that wide-ranging conversation as well. Stick around. So first, I want to go back a bit. I was talking to uh, Tim Fitzpatrick, the CEO of I Icona, uh, which uses VR for patient education is in the startup health portfolio. And he told me why he was so excited that you were speaking. He said, Dr. Brennan is one of the first clinician adopters of VR and helped VR to get a foothold both in research and commercialization. And that got, got me thinking about really our emphasis on health moonshots at Startup Health and this idea that it takes really long-term vision to, uh, to see something like this through. So I wonder if you could go back and sort of frame up, you know, what was it about as an early adopter of health technology and VR in particular, what was your vision for this? What was your health moonshot for this that made you willing to kind of set this long-term course? Yeah, I don't know if there was a, an aha moment initially that this was a moonshot, rather it evolved over time and uh, demonstrated benefits for our patients that really demanded that we continue to investigate this technology. And, you know, in my experience in digital health, which is pretty extensive now, I've seen a number of devices that are sort of looking for an application, looking for an indication. Um, but this seemed like the other way around. It seemed like virtual reality was fitting a need that was unmet. And, and that is partly what, what allowed me to kind of keep pursuing it. Plus just seeing the clear cut clinical benefits. I mean, I'm a doctor, I'm on call today, uh, seeing patients today and just seeing a patient get better or feel better uh, after using in this case, virtual reality is compelling. And it sort of drove me and my team to start more rigorously evaluating the benefits of this. Now, the first time I used VR, there was certainly an aha moment, just like most people when they use VR for the first time, if, assuming it's good VR, because there's, you know, there's VR and there's VR. But I recognize that it really hijacks the brain, unlike any other audiovisual medium ever, you know, ever invented. 
And if it could be used for, you know, first person shooter games and that sort of thing, maybe we can use it um, for good also. And, and that's been the mission for our team is how can we use this, this particular technology for good and it came from a, a, a sort of healthy background in digital health that we've developed over the last seven, eight years, plus a healthy skepticism about digital technologies. Because I've heard lots of promises and I, you know, I, I teach a class in digital health science in our grad school. I've seen many different companies come in with lots of big grand promises, but to actually see something work in real life is completely different. And one of my litmus tests now for you know, digital health experts is have you placed a digital device on a patient before? Mm. Because if you haven't, then that's like a pharmacist who's never filled out a prescription. Or for that matter, a cartographer who's never drawn a map. So um, you need to know what it's actually like when users uh, integrate technology into clinical care and, and what happens. So we could I'm opening up a lot of different discussion points yeah. here, but that's sort of my response to your question. Yeah, and I love how that taps into this idea of of collaboration. Uh, it's got to be the the innovator and the physicians and the patient. It's got to be this collaborative environment. I, I wonder to dig into that a little bit more. I wonder if you could unpack this um, Center for Outcomes Research and Education, uh, this multidisciplinary team approach. Kind of what is that? What are you building? Uh, yeah. Right so, so our team is um, is a diverse team. We include um, clinicians health services researchers, epidemiologists, statisticians, but we also have programmers. We have Unity programmers. Uh, we have VR programmers. We're a development shop now for VR. Um, we also have qualitative research experts, you know, PhD level, rigorously trained staff. And we have funding from federal sources like the NIH and PCORI to evaluate uh, digital technologies on the front lines of care. Um, so over the years, you know, our skill set, which includes also health economics, I should point out. Um, so I teach a class on cost effectiveness analysis, decision analysis, and health economic modeling. So we bring all of those together to understand sort of from stem to stern, both the, um, the sort of user-centered design uh, best practices for creating devices and health technologies, all the way through to testing them in clinical trials. Um, and understanding the sort of qualitative and quantitative benefits through to understanding the health economic uh, story that can be told around, uh, around digital health. So VR is, you know, a worked example, but we've done a lot of work with many other devices, including apps, um, you know, wearable sensors. I've, I've invented a sensor that's FDA cleared, for example, so I've been through the regulatory pathway as well. So we do a lot of different stuff, but we consider ourselves academicians um, first and foremost, and and you know clinician scientists. That piece of it, uh, that academic piece, is very interesting. That you're actually teaching on these subjects that a lot of other people are sort of dipping their toes into, experimenting with on the innovation side. You're working it through the challenges in the classroom. Uh, can you give me an example of kind of taking that from theory to practice, from the classroom to the patient? Sure. Uh, so at Cedars, we have, um, first of all, we have an accelerator. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, I'm not embedded in the accelerator, but I work with the accelerator. Um, and the accelerator takes um, about 10, nine to 10 companies every 10 months or so. Uh, and that's an example where Cedars is really trying to not just publish papers, but actually accelerate the development and validation of generally digital health interventions sort of on the front lines of care, working hand in glove between 
the developers and the companies and the clinician end users and patient end users who might use that product or service sometime in the future. So that's an example where we do integrate our curriculum in our graduate school uh, with those best practices that the accelerator uses. And in fact, um, uh, Ann Wellington, who runs our accelerator, um, is involved in our curriculum and our digital health program and is sort of a, like a guest judge, for example. So we require all of our students to um, work in groups to identify one of these companies. They don't have to be an accelerator company of Cedars, but any digital health company, and will uh, rigorously evaluate that their product from the ground up um, and then conduct health economic models to determine whether a health system like Cedars-Sinai should invest in that company. And then we bring in the president of um, Cedars, um, Tom Prisolak, the CEO, who is a judge and actually sits there and listens to the students present their case for whether or not Cedars-Sinai should invest in that company and invest in that product or service. So that's a very word. That's an example where we really try to take the academic best practices, but teach pragmatic skills that our students can then take out to other health systems, whether it's Cedars-Sinai or otherwise. Um, to figure out how to really evaluate health technologies rigorously through the lens of a health system. Hmm. How did this past year, how did COVID kind of change and really alter the way you have those conversations? I don't know, I don't know when you have those pitches, when you bring on new companies, but I'm just curious kind of the trends that you're seeing uh, and how 2020 changed the course. Yeah, well, everyone's talking about virtual now. Um, and every industry has become virtualized to some degree or another. I'm not even sure if that's really a word virtualized, but I'm hearing it a lot. And it is, um, it is now, it is now. Yeah, no, it, it is now. Uh, so this notion of um, remote patient monitoring, of um, telemedicine, of going beyond the four walls of the physical health systems where we work um, has always been a fundamental principle of digital health. Um, but now is accelerating in ways that we never imagined. You know, I, I almost exclusively see my outpatients now through telemedicine. Of course, I'm in the hospital, going to the hospital for inpatient care. Um, but that's been the biggest change is this rapid acceptance that um, telemedicine and remote patient monitoring does have a role. We've known that. Um, but now, the you know, the... Uh, it's just there's been a, a major catalyst to accelerate um, our understanding of practically using these interventions, whether we whether we like it or not. But I think most people are are seeing the silver lining around. around. There's no silver lining to this pandemic, but there is a silver lining to dig, for digital health in this in this regard. Um, I want to dig more into VR specifically and your book, but before I do that, I want to take a couple questions from the chat as they're coming in. Uh, Kathy from Parallel Profile, uh, you've got a, a question here about uh, the patient-physician bond. Could you come off of mute and ask it? Yeah, um, I when I asked it, it was because of the language that you had used about the patient bond being physician bond being important, and mm -hmm. I kind of disagree. But then Logan used the word that I prefer to be heard, which is collaborative. That. Mm -hmm that the, um, so often patients are far less engaged because they don't understand that they have a role. Right. Um, and giving them a role so that there can be collaboration, I think is really important. Um, and so I'm wondering how much of what you're doing builds that, which requires interactivity as opposed to 
passive monitoring. Absolutely. So uh, shared decision-making or SDM is, is critical to the success of digital health. Digital health is not a computer science. It's not an engineering science. It's a social science. It's a behavioral science, first and foremost. And we know from our experience and others that if you just drop a, <clears throat> a wearable on somebody or give them a VR headset, that they'll stop using it pretty quickly. And this is literally called the law of attrition, which Gunter Eisenbach coined back in 2005. So this is not a new, um, this is not a new insight that um, patients need to be engaged meaningfully in their care. Um, we have to think about these technologies as a conduit to strengthen that communication between patient and provider. There's obviously best practices in UI UX and, and in the actual development of these technologies and apps and wearables and so on. But there's also the whole social piece around this, which is how do we train clinicians to use these devices and, and technologies as tools to strengthen their relationships. So in the book I wrote, which is about virtual reality, it's called VRX. Uh, I have a whole section on VR as an empathy machine. And this idea that virtual reality is a technology that is in essence forcing conversations that never would have occurred. So whereas an electronic health record averts my eyes and causes me to look away from my patient, VR causes me to look at my patient and communicate with my patient about really deep existential issues that I may not have ever thought about, except for the fact that they're you know, crying and, uh, and, and, and thinking about their biopsychosocial well-being while swimming with dolphins in a headset in the hospital. So it forces um, a conversation that might not otherwise occur. So yeah. Dr. Spie Dr. Spiegel, you, you mentioned Thanks. briefly your book, um, uh, VRX, how Vir virtual therapeutics will revolutionize medicine. I don't wanna dig into that a little bit. Um, from your vantage point, having finished this book, let's talk about what you think VR can really uh, accomplish, what some of those primary levers are that it, that it can accomplish medically. Um, and then we can kind of talk about some of the ramifications in terms of innovation. Yeah, so VR is a platform. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not one thing. It's a technology that allows us to, um, to, to impact the human mind. Um, so I think of it in a way like a syringe. Uh, which is not a great analogy because people have really negative responses to that analogy. But, but insofar as a syringe is a platform, it's not the syringe that matters. It's what medicine do we put through the syringe that matters. The syringe is just a way to get medicine into somebody. So a VR headset is a platform. What matters is the software. What are people seeing, feeling, hearing? How are they interacting with the environment? Are we giving the right software to the right patient at the right time? And is it being supported by other behavioral interventions that can strengthen the insights gained in virtual reality, if assuming the VR is effective. Um, so that's how I think of VR is a way to nudge the human mind in a very powerful way, in a way that no other um, audiovisual medium is really capable of as of now. Um, and can we use it to leverage what we already know about mind-body medicine, which some people think of as sort of voodoo science or new age stuff. But you know, there's, 
there's thousands of years of experience with transcendental psychologies and, 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 and religions and practices that mind-body medicine is absolutely is a real thing. It's just hard to become a monk, which requires 40,000 hours of practice to you know, achieve a flow state. Um, virtual reality is one way to level the playing field pretty quickly so that people can achieve, in some cases, monk level um, sort of flow states or even psychedelic like flow states when, when it's been tested head to head against psilocybin or magic mushrooms. So VR is a platform that can be used for a number of ways and it has a number of mechanisms by which it works. Yeah. You know, for pain management, it can simply be a distraction if you're using it for acute pain, for example, during a spinal tap, or if a child is having, or an adult for that matter, um, a dislocated elbow um, you know, straightened in the emergency department. Okay, that's a simple example. Um, VR is very good at that, getting an immunization or vaccination. For chronic pain, the mechanism is different. This is cognitive behavioral therapy. This is about uh, teaching skills like um, biofeedback enabled breathing uh, or uh, psychoeducation. Uh, we're developing all sorts of new interventions using brain computer interfaces and eye tracking and ways to really use co literally cognitive behavioral therapy where the, the BCI can detect your thoughts and it will change the environment that you're in in a, hopefully a positive way. And we could talk about examples. So I can go on and on, but um, VR really, it, it teaches us about our consciousness. Uh, and when I wrote the book, um, it really wasn't meant to be a technical book for people who love VR. It was meant to be a book for people who are curious about consciousness, about the intersection between philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, um, clinical medicine, and technology. And, and really I explore uh, that boundary and VR is a lens to do it. And so that's sort of the, the concept behind the book and concept behind virtual medicine in general. You mentioned the, the myriad applications and you mentioned, you know, mental health. Uh, and we've got a question here from Mehmet from Kliexa. And I think it's worth spending a moment to kind of dig a little deeper into some of those mental health applications. So uh, Mehmet, why don't you come off of mute? Thanks, Logan, and uh, nice to meet you, Dr. Spiegel. So um, we're in the pain and um, mental health space. I'm both an owner of a clinic, pain treatment clinic, both mental health and pain, and also have a digital health platform as part of startup portfolio. So there was a, a study that we did with an entity here in the past where um, they, they started to use VR to do therapy um, on pain patients. And you just start based on a little bit on the um, coping skills training to manage patients. So I wanted to hear quickly about your successes and maybe failures at one point, if you're not embarrassed to tell us, like uh, any experiences that you've seen in the integrated pain space with VR. I'm just wondering how far you guys were able to go, if you don't mind. Yeah, uh, actually not embarrassed at all. I wrote, wrote a whole chapter about our, our failures um, in, the, in the book, which I happen to have sitting right here. So um, yeah. Um, we're doing a, uh, so some research now. I have an NIH-sponsored trial looking at um, chronic, uh, different forms of virtual reality, including sham VR for chronic lower back pain. And soon we'll be starting it for um, cancer-related pain with advanced um, uh, cancer. Um, and we have a couple other trials underway as well. Um, don't have uh, results yet, at least from our own trials to, to share. We do have results from our inpatient pain 
trials, and those have been successful and have been published. So you can check those out in the literature. We also have a website called virtualmedicine.org or virtualmedicine.health, which is a pretty comprehensive website now with access to all of our research and also to a large library of videos from key opinion leaders within virtual reality. It's all free and available. Plus we have a list of all of our favorite VR programs that we use with our patients. So you can check that out if you have time or interest. But uh, we've seen VR um, um, be very effective, particularly in short term. The longer term, we're still learning what the long-term benefits are and how to support that. Um, we've seen virtual reality uh, also cause occasional side effects, not just expected side effects like vertigo, but um, really profound side effects like uh, triggering a panic attack or triggering um, derealization, uh, depersonalization, feeling like you're literally out of your body, um, which in a weird way can be therapeutic, but could also be extremely unsettling or scary if you're not expecting it. Um, so it can be sometimes hard to predict, and we're working on how do we predict who's gonna have those responses. And some of it has to do with certain psychological um, traits like immersive tendencies, which is a term that's been developed years ago where some people are just more easily immersed into virtual worlds than others and are more likely to have a benefit. But anyway, um, it's a broad question you ask, so it's kind of hard to answer it succinctly, um, but you know, I'd refer you to some of our papers for more details on um, our experiences so far in the published literature. Dr. Spiegel, other applications that have sort of surprised you over the last year, if you think about kind of going beyond, pressing beyond maybe the expected distraction therapy, um, et cetera, uh, kind of you're more familiar with sort of the breadth of that, of that space than, than a lot of us are. Uh, yeah, there's uh, so many interesting and unexpected use cases. One of the most striking, which I talk about in the book, there's a few that I'll mention. Uh, one is for schizophrenia. And you know, here's a condition that affects about 1% about of the population. Not, it is not rare. I mean, it's certainly uncommon, but you know, there are rare diseases. Schizophrenia is a common enough, very severe problem um, and is very uh, difficult to treat. Uh, there are medications which have some benefit uh, and in traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, some benefit, but very difficult. Uh, but there's a team up in Montreal led by Alexander Dumay, who's been studying uh, virtual reality trialogue therapy, not dialogue, but trialogue. And it's incredible. The way it works is the patient um, who is experiencing like an inner demonic voice in many cases uh, explains to the clinician what that voice sounds like and what it looks like. And then they create it in virtual reality. So you can now get into virtual reality and be face-to-face -face with your inner voice. Wow. And then the clinician will um, speak through um, a microphone in another room and his or her voice is permuted by the computer to sound like the voice that the patient's hearing. And they communicate through that avatar with the patient. And over the course of eight weeks, slowly seed control to the patient through a series of CBT scripts and in this uh, example, the, the effect size is like 1.2 standard deviations or so, which is really a very large effect in terms of clinical benefits for these patients, where they feel like they get to know their voice. They may not be able to make the voice go away, but the voice can become a friend, not an enemy. 
And in virtual reality, they can train people to do that. So to me, that's an example of a really uh, creative and totally unexpected use of virtual reality. Uh, also in dementia is another very profound use of virtual reality where people can be transported back to their childhood home and stereoscopic vision and VR and all of a sudden be coherent in telling stories and remember and singing songs. Whereas, um, you know, minutes before might've been incoherent or upset or crying. And there's videos of this too. So those are examples again of, to me, very profound uses of VR and of technology in general. Uh, Dr. Spiegel, you talked about the, really the breadth of the applications of VR, talking about it like a syringe. It's more what you kind of deliver through it uh, versus the, the tool itself. Uh, and yet I'm struck by the idea that a lot of healthcare startups sort of see themselves as VR or not VR. It's kind of an integral piece of their identity. Um, and your description is more of a tool that can be applied in a broad uh, variety of ways. So I wonder what your sort of advice or wisdom is to a uh, health innovation founder sort of thinking about, should I be using VR? Should I be going down this road? Am I a VR mm -hmm. company, et cetera? Well, of course, the world's much bigger than VR. So, um, you know, VR might make perfect sense for some people on this call or, or really be a stretch for others. It's, to me, it has to be a natural fit. There has to be a use case that's clear. So for example, you know, I'm contacted by a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are interested in exploring VR for uh, physician education to describe the mechanism of action of their drug, let's say. And, you know, I think, you know, are you doing that because it sounds good? Um, or do you really think it's going to make a difference? You know, are doctors really going to sit down and learn about an MOA through VR? Maybe. Uh, and if so, how are you really going to use the VR in a way that takes advantage of that platform compared to a video, a commercial, a trifold brochure, right? Is there something special about VR that enables you to tell us the story differently? And those are the kind of questions that I pose back. Um, you know, there's been some examples that I've seen where companies have developed VR and I've looked at them and I thought, I'm a little bit dizzy. I mean, that's kind of what I am after experiencing it. So I, I'm, I'm really excited that they're engaging in VR, but I'm not sure this was the best use of their time or, or funds um, or creativity. Uh, on the other hand, um, I'm talking to some companies about using VR as a beyond the pill therapeutic. Um, so, you know, for certain chronic diseases where one pill is certainly not going to cure somebody, um, there are many behavioral interventions that can improve uh, outcomes and VR might be able to support those. So we've done work with companies to explore VR as an adjunctive behavioral intervention for home-based care um, to support the use of traditional pharmacotherapies. So I'm answering your question with some examples. I don't know if it's totally direct, directed to your question, but I guess in the end, you just have to think about why would I use VR? What's special about it for my use case? Or am I just doing it because other people are talking about VR and somebody wrote a book about it? You know, you know I guess I ask that because what I hear you saying um, makes me feel like there, well, there's just a broader applications. And so companies that might not have considered it before mm -hmm. uh, might realize that this is a, um, this is a syringe in my toolbox. And, yeah. and, and so maybe, the, maybe it is a broader tool than some entrepreneurs realized. Yeah, I think that's worth, uh, that's a great point. Uh, VR 
is if used correctly and safely um, and ethically, and there's a lot of, and I talk about some of those things in the book, um, a very powerful uh, tool for, to support um, positive behaviors. Uh, it doesn't always work. Uh, there can be side effects. Uh, it could be misused. But for the most part, the goal is to learn something about yourself or your condition or your disease that you might not be able to learn as easily outside of VR, but then to get out of VR. We don't want people living in VR. We don't, in healthcare, we're not trying to make a sticky app that people are gonna stay in every day. We want people to get into VR and then come out of VR and feel like real reality or RR is richer, more, um, more powerful. Um, Dr. Greenhill from Care Team has got a question about accelerating adoption. And actually this was my next question, Alexandra. So I'm glad that you asked it. So come off of mute and uh, go ahead and share. Mm. Thank you. Um, I'm always impatient on how can we help more patients faster. Mm -hmm. And so the question here becomes, um, you know, this problem which all of us face, which is we have something that we've shown works in one setting or for one condition. And how can we get across all of the usual hurdles? And I love the website you've put together because I can just see people object and say, my patient is too young, too old, too uneducated, too something to to use this my day is too busy to fit this into it you know i can just jab a needle in them why do they have to have a goggle before that like how do you deal with a lot of these objections so we can scale this and mm -hmm. obviously education through a website like the one you mentioned is a tool but have you come across any other strategies to accelerate yeah idea to bedside well this i think we're all interested in that question um because we're all trying to make a difference in the world in healthcare. And it can be frustrating because there's so many barriers and you know, healthcare is, is unlike any other industry in the world. You can't compare it to any industry. Um, so anything you, know, you might've learned in one industry, bring it to healthcare and all of a sudden the rules are different. People have different perspectives. There's more barriers, it's frustrating. And I have students that ask this question. They're like, I'm learning all this stuff. But when I tell my supervisor, they're like, oh, that's really cute. Now go back to work. You know, that's sort of, um, somebody literally told me that. So I don't know that every supervisor feels that way. But the point is that, you know, there's uh, an asymmetry between innovators and their vision and sometimes, um, you know, healthcare administrators that don't see the vision or don't have the tools to enact it. Um, I mean, from the VR example, what we've decided to do is just push forward and build a clinic. And we're going to announce uh, in the fall, uh, we have actually are hiring somebody right now to literally just open up a clinic. We're going to, rather than make this uh, just a research activity where we write papers, uh, we've worked with leadership and we've had great support from Cedars-Sinai um, to have the resources to bring on uh, staff and to literally create a clinic where we're going to create a teaching service and have a full service VR clinic for people to come in and get VR treatments um, in partnership with our psychiatry department. Um, so that's just one example, but you know, the, the blocking and tackling of getting things out there often depends upon who's in charge of IT, what their um, perspectives and philosophy are. Do they see themselves as a collaborator with the innovators or do they, and, and as a, um, a conduit to, you know, to those people, or do they see those people maybe more as an impediment to what they're trying to accomplish? In which case you get this encampment that can occur. 
you know, I feel very fortunate to be at Cedar Sinai where uh, there's really broad acceptance of different ways of innovating. And the accelerator is a perfect example of that. And our, our IT department, I think, has really evolved uh, to be very supportive of uh, this type of innovation. But not every health system necessarily has that perspective. So I don't have a magic answer for you, but those are just a couple observations and thoughts that may, may spark some other thoughts. Appreciate the question. Uh, we've got a question from Kim Gandhi from Play It Health, kind of about the limits of sort of behavior change through VR. Uh, Kim, if you want to come off of mute. So thank you, Logan. Um, so Dr. Brent or Dr. Spiegel, the, the question is really, um, it's addressed to two things, um, both to for clinicians and sort of the ability to use VR to um, allow a better development of empathy, if you will. And even um, right now, uh, to use potentially VR with development of empathy to uh, address vaccine hesitancy. Yes. I'm sure you've been looking into this, but um, you know, the question is, you know, in, in Cory Booker's sort of words, you know, we have a crisis of empathy right now. And so I just thought I'd ask you sort of, you know, directly, what are your thoughts on the power of, of VR to address empathy? Oh, yeah. Um, well, like I said, there's a whole chapter in the book about just this question. And, and I was really moved when I went to University of Barcelona a couple of years ago um, to the laboratory of Mel Slater, who's done a lot of this work, particularly around empathy. Um, and in his lab, he put me in a headset and I opened my eyes and I was a woman. I looked, there was a mirror and I can see myself moving one-to-one -one as a woman. I looked down and I saw a different body. And I found myself in an apartment where all of a sudden this man walks in, starts yelling at me and screaming at me. And he's looking at me and he's calling me ugly and disgusting and, and look at how you're dressed up. And um, he takes a telephone, he throws it at me and I, I like ducked because I felt like he was coming at me. Wow. And you know, I'm fairly tall, but he's taller. No matter how tall the user is, this guy's always taller looking down on you. And of course, what this was, was a, a domestic violence simulation. Now, I can't pretend to know for a second what it's really like to be on the receiving end of domestic violence, but I'll never forget that experience because it at least gave me a framework of what that is like. So the next time I see an ICD-9 code or ICD-10 code for domestic violence, I think back to that time in that simulator. And I think a little bit differently about that than I might have otherwise. And so that's empathy. I mean, again, it's, it's got to be careful because I, I wouldn't pretend to know what that's really like, but, but the same would apply for feel, you know, feeling like you have a macular degeneration or having a migraine headache or developing dementia or cognitive decline. There are VR simulators for all of those. And there are medical schools that are now starting to use that with doctors in training to really teach them what it's a, a little bit of what it's like to be in the shoes of somebody who's experiencing these illnesses. Um, and so that's what we mean by empathy as a, uh, I'm sorry, as VR as an empathy machine, which is a term that Chris Milk made up, not me, but it's a very uh, powerful concept that uh, VR has this ability to tap into the emotional experience of something. And, and we learn things when they're emotionally charged, either positively or negatively, emotionally provocative. And that's what VR is able to achieve. So uh, vaccine hesitancy is just one of many use cases where you can imagine VR 
uh, potentially making a difference. So are you, are you doing any of that work? I mean, is there somebody actually doing that now? Because it's kind of a problem. So uh, my lab's not directly doing that at all. We did a version of it a few years ago in a high blood pressure example. Um, we're focusing more on therapeutic management, but there are definitely many investigators, Jeremy Balinson at Stanford, for example. Um, and we had a whole webinar on VR empathy uh, about uh, last year, last June or July, and it's recorded and it is on our website. So you can uh, learn more about some of the research occurring in this space. Okay, thank you. Uh, speaking of your research, we had a couple people in the chat ask for more uh, de granular detail about your randomized controlled trial that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if we can get um, you know, off the call or, or if you know, if it's, if it's easy to get a link if we could share that link, that would be awesome. So people can do Yeah, that well, you, you go to clinicaltrials.gov or go to uh, the NIH um, website, you can learn more. But the, the this trial I described um, that we're doing right now is a three-arm study in people with chronic lower back pain. And the three arms include sham, where you just have a VR headset. Um, so we control for the fact that people get a headset, but they're watching a two-dimensional screen. It's like a widescreen TV of sort of nature videos, very nondescript. The second arm is distraction, what we call distraction-based VR. So this is uh, in three-dimensional immersive worlds, uh, nature scenes, beautiful scenes, things that hopefully take your mind off of what's happening. But the third arm is what we call skills-based VR. This is now going beyond distraction and building skills uh, mainly based on cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, and this is a program that was developed by Applied VR, one of our first accelerator companies. So that's an example, by the way, bringing it back to the accelerator. Applied VR has become one of the industry leaders in therapeutic VR. And uh, they developed a eight week um, CBT based, uh, skills based VR program. And that's what we're using as the third arm for that study. And then we're following people for three months and monitoring a whole wide variety of outcomes. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion, Dr. Spiegel. We're at the towards the top of the hour, and what we do every week is give uh, everyone on the call a chance to kind of reflect back their biggest insight, uh, what what they're taking away from this time together. So, if anyone would like to share that, they can drop their name uh, into the chat. Uh, I'll begin, Dr. Spiegel. I was I was really struck by this sort of the Cedar sinai ecosystem and, and just the collaborative nature of the classroom, um, the, the accelerator, and you talked about rolling that into a clinic uh, and this idea of bringing it from the classroom discussion, those studies to the, to the patient's bedside and how you have to have a place with the right leadership. You have to have all those pieces together and um, at institutions like that are, are special incubators for that kind of, um, of process, but don't have to be unique. And we can have, I think, other um, places like that. So I, that what was what struck me. Uh, Emilio from um, Mancotin, uh, go ahead and share. Hello, uh, hello, Brennan. Oh, hey. Nice seeing you. Yeah. And one of the things that I take out from this conversation is the reassurance and confirmation that on the behavioral sciences and digital therapeutics, uh, definitely use cases like the one we are uh, working with uh, 
have a much bigger picture and embed it into the healthcare system uh, with the work that you are doing. So I'm very happy to 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 listen and to and to to be part of this you know uh, group. Awesome, awesome. Okay, well we're at the top of the hour, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you so much for taking uh, an hour out of your busy schedule uh, to to share with us. I know my mind was expanded. And um, I appreciate you taking questions from the uh, health transformers. So uh, yeah. we, all we all thank you. Well, thanks very much. And for the, uh, the semantic challenges too. So uh, appreciate the, uh, the back and forth. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.